It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. Much has happened since last we got together. The Democrats have announced their plan to change the elections and the way we do them forever. It is a disastrous plan and will consolidate the worst things that happened in 2020. Buckingham Palace is investigating former Prince I, Meghan Markle, for being an unrepentant bully to the help at Buckingham Palace. We'll unpack that just a little. A follow-up to the Portland dystopia tour that we took you on last time. And the Portland Most Wanted latest Antifa poster boy and... He's very interesting. The latest on Antifa versus Mike Strickland. Is it reasonable to use a gun to stave off a bunch of black bloc outfitted Antifa goons? Well, that's the subject because we're still in the courtroom uh, as we go along to the next episode, which is uh, later on in the podcast. Now, remember back to the more than 120 days of rioting in downtown and other parts of Portland, Oregon last spring. How could you how could you forget? It happened during the spring and the summer and the fall and they stopped when there were big fires that broke out in the state of Oregon. Riots occurred in other parts of the country when Antifa and BLM rioters drove Donald Trump and his family to the nuclear bunker. Remember that one in the White House when they were so close and they were they were coming so close that they were risking the security of the president of the United States. You probably don't remember that because it didn't make the news. I mean, it made some news, obviously, but not all the news. Now, remember, they, the rioters partially burned down the church across the street from the White House, the so-called president's church. And all anyone could do was fault Donald Trump for tromping over to that church the next day, grabbing a Bible and having his picture taken with the Bible in a, in a photo of defiance to stand for his ability to speak out and use his First Amendment uh, rights as well as uh, stand for law and order. But sure, he's the problem. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Asking for America. Was that an insurgency? Let's go over to Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois for his opinion on the danger of Antifa BLM rioters as opposed to those Capitol Hill rioters. I join my Republican colleagues unequivocally in condemning left-wing violence, but let's stop pretending that the threat of Antifa is... equivalent to the white supremacist threat. Vandalizing a federal courthouse in Portland is a crime. It should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, but it is not equivalent to a violent attempt to overturn the results of elections, nor is it equivalent to mass shootings targeting minority communities. This false equivalency is an insult to the brave police officers who were injured or lost their lives on January 6th as well as dozens of others who've been murdered in white supremacist attacks. We need to be abundantly clear. Thanks, Dick. Anyway, in Portland, where the worst of it was, unless you count Kenosha when armed rioters went after Kyle Rittenhouse and he fired back in self-defense, killing two and wounding one. Anyway, in Portland, where the rioters were trying to blind cops and the feds with lasers, where they were starting fires in buildings, where there were cops and then blocking the exit so they couldn't get out, and beating cops. Remember now, this was uh, Portland's Summer of Love.
What was that, Dick Durbin, again? I join my Republican colleagues unequivocally in condemning left-wing violence, but let's stop pretending that the threat of Antifa is equivalent to the white supremacist threat. Vandalizing a federal courthouse in Portland is a crime. It should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, but it is not equivalent to a violent attempt to overturn the results of elections, nor is it equivalent to mass shootings targeting minority communities. This false equivalency is an insult to the brave police officers who were injured or lost their lives on January 6, as well as dozens of others who've been murdered in white supremacist attacks. We need to be abundantly clear. Well, anyway, last summer, the local DA passed on prosecuting most of the writers because justice, just us and George Soros. You know, that's just not okay to hold people accountable for the wrongs they do, the acts of violence they do against other people, as as well as to the Constitution, the thought of right and wrong, basic ethics, and law and order. So they couldn't do that. So Bill Barr, who at that point was the Attorney General of the U.S. of A., said, okay, we're going to, we will bring charges and prosecute the people who did these things against our buildings, the federal court building and other federal buildings, including ICE building, etc. And and we'll go after them. And and they did. And fully one third of those cases were dismissed. Some dismissed with prejudice, so they could not be brought up on the charge again which is highly unusual. These included literally people who attacked federal officers. And when asked by a local TV news station, wait a minute, what? That was pretty much the question. Uh, What? They said, well, you couldn't prove it was a, 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 we couldn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt, she tried to say, in a court case that these people were, Guilty. Fair enough. That's the standard by which all of these kinds of trials should be made. And so, fine. But which U.S. attorney made that decision? The guy who said he was going to go after him? Or was it the guy that Biden put in after the Trump appointee? Good question. The story just came out. So I'm assuming it's the Biden guy that decided that some of these things just decided not to be prosecuted the local authorities who are in the U.S. Attorney's Office, so they're federal authorities, but they're locally stationed, and they decided not to go after them. So obviously, reasonable doubt, the reasonable doubt standard is something that we should abide by. And if they didn't think they'd win in court with that, okay, I'll take them at their word. Let's find out what happens with the other 66% of these cases. But if you're a federal officer who was being lazed, you know, your eyes lasered, you were beaten, sprayed, and whose building, how about spit upon? I mean, that's always a fun one, isn't it? And whose building was being set on fire while you were inside, you're probably wondering, where's the law? What's going on with law enforcement? Is there law anymore? Is law and order just so passe that, you know, here's, here's just a little aside. Isn't it interesting that the changes in this milieu, the, the changes in the ethical decisions that we make are based upon the firm belief by 
these leftists that people are fundamentally good. And listen, you know how people stay fundamentally good? When there are guardrails to keep them fundamentally good. And that stands for the law. When you do not hold them accountable, you're going to get more of it. That which is rewarded is repeated, baby. And what I mean by that is if you don't hold them accountable, that's like a reward. Hey, I got to do all this terrible stuff. I got to burn stuff. I got to beat people up. I got to, you know, do whatever with impunity. You're, you're going to do it again because there's no disincentive. Am I right or am I right? Of course I'm right. Now, meantime, just days within our Portland dystopian tour was recorded on the streets of the fecally inclined Portland downtown area. We featured the Apple store that looked like it was, uh, I don't know, a boarded up school and escape from New York or the nicer area of the Wire neighborhood. Um, and it was because rioters and looters who were, you know, looking for justice, which is why they broke into the store, broke the windows and then stole a lot of stuff and then just uh, RF'd everything in there. Anyway, so the store was open last week. The store was open last week after the company thanked in writing in a sign on the front of the store. Thank you. Thank you, sir. May I have another? It was a thank you to Black Lives Matter, whose members, including Antifa, looted and destroyed the store. So, yeah, it was a thank you. We really appreciate you. Oh, and then they donated, quote unquote, donated the murals from the front of the store because, of course, it had been plywooded up on the temporary fencing that, of course, went around it. They were ensconced in the plastic jersey barriers, which were held down, I assume, is it water that holds them down? Maybe sand? I don't even know. And so those murals were on there. They had been blank. They had looked like every other building in that core area looks. The Multnomah County uh, Justice Center, the federal building, they're, they're all boarded up. The city Hall, City Hall's boarded up, except the second floor has Black Lives Matter signs in the windows, sort of like a, another way of saying, please, please don't hurt us. We, we like you when you're not killing us and rioting. Really, honest, we, we really agree with you. So anyway, back to the Apple store. So they, the murals that were decorated, painted black and then decorated with murals, you know, the, the, the stuff that was outside the Apple store were donated to Black Lives Matter. So, okay. Then they replaced it with the thank you note for destroying our store, Thank you, sir. May I have another? And then replace the temporary fencing. Now, this is key. They replace the temporary fencing and the Jersey barriers with permanent fencing, which tech writers complained about because they said it looked like, and I'm not making this up, it looked like Apple did not trust the community. Really? <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't imagine why Apple wouldn't trust the community after having its store destroyed by the community. The day after I wrote the story for about it, rather, in uh, PJ Media, 
there was a planned riot or protest. And I said at the time, I go, oh, Cal, here we go again. They no sooner get the big things of plywood off. The temporary fencing is is there. and They, they open it. And, oh, gee, it's going to be. It's, I hope the fences hold. That's basically what I said. I hope I hope the fences hold. And even though the Apple store was spared this time from a Portland riot, other stores in just a, an area of town not too far away from the core area, it's called the Pearl District, did not fare so well. Over to you, Coin6 News. Holte behind us, which uh, had its window smashed out from this group that started marching from the Fields Park. And uh, employees and uh, customers were inside when this group came through and went running toward the back of the restaurant. Uh, they looked really scared when all this was happening when this group came through in black and smashed the windows. And then I want to draw your attention to the Umqua Bank building, too, over here on the corner. This was also hit very hard. Um, you can see that this glass here is shattered um, all along the windows, panes here as we walk down um, toward the uh, the end of the bank building and it's just uh, a lot of damage here there's glass all over the ground you can hear it cracking on uh, the panes as they might uh, fall out or fall in uh, which can be kind of dangerous so we have to be careful too when we're walking along here so the damage extends all the way down here uh, to this office space uh, and beyond on the other side of the street as well. We have uh, the urban pantry over there uh, to my left across the street that had damage done to the windows. And we also have a Starbucks um, to, on the corner there where there was damage done to the windows. And people were kind of circling the block here um, in several blocks within this area in the Pearl, just smashing windows and spraying graffiti on buildings throughout the Pearl. So we've seen a lot of these destructive marches throughout the uh, past few months. And one thing I did notice here is some of the Pearl residents were kind of fighting back. Uh, they were yelling down from their windows because they could see what was going on and yelling at the people that were damaging property here to go home. And then the people that were uh, marching through the streets were yelling expletives back at them. But the residents here didn't really seem to want that in their neighborhood. We had, did see police around here. I didn't see any arrests, um, but I did see them in the area. I'm not sure if that happened at a different location from where we were, but we did see police uh, kind of a block off from where a lot of this stuff was happening. So as I said, this started in the Fields Park and they marched through the Pearl. I think that the groups are broken up uh, into smaller groups at this point. That's what we've noticed in this area anyway. Doesn't mean that more damage couldn't be done. Um, we've seen that in the past, but for right now, things have died down in this area, but Again, just some extensive damage here to some of the buildings. And also, uh, there were some people that were threatened. Uh, we saw some employees and some residents here that um, were threatened physically uh, by people who were on the march um, because they were confronting them about spray paint or because they had security uniforms on or because they had a disagreement uh, with the group. So a lot of activity out here tonight. And people are asking, what is this protest about? Well, we heard them yelling anti-police slogans as they were marching. So we know they are against the police. But uh, for the most part, that was what we heard uh, as they were on the move. We did hear some people say, too, that they might be going uh, to the ICE building as well. And I hear some activity behind me. Uh, looks like somebody coming this way. I uh, just wanted to clear out. Didn't know what that noise was. So... Again, a lot of action out here. We're just trying to stay safe, but it looks like things are dying down in this area anyway. Wayne?
sorry, Jennifer, you're having to keep your head on a swivel down there. Uh, unfortunate to see this occurring. I know a little bit earlier we saw an older man being yelled and threatened uh, by, I guess it was a protester, uh, screaming and yelling just inches from his face without a mask, by the way, I might add. What, what happened there? I didn't actually see. Did that end safely? I think he was able to move away from the situation. I didn't see anyone strike him, but there were residents who were in the uh, balconies above shouting at the men or man who was threatening him to stop threatening an older man. I mean, literally, the resident was shouting down to him, why are you threatening this older gentleman? Stop. So I don't know if because there were eyeballs on, on that situation that it kind of died down. I didn't see him actually get hit, but... You know, it's it's a volatile situation, so it was kind of concerning. I did see the same thing, Wayne. Yeah, whatever the protest was about, certainly got lost with all of this violence. Thank you for that update from the Pearl District tonight. Okay, so let's recap: the Antifa BLM protest rioters terrorized people in a Chipotle who ran for their lives to the back room because they were scared out of their gourds as the the marauding horde started breaking windows. They went after an old man. And by the way, they went after other businesses. Of course, usually the usual target, Starbucks. That's the man, man. So they went after an old man, probably giving him lip, but that doesn't mean you go try to beat him up. So somebody was standing in front of this old man, like inches away from his face, yelling at him. Without a mask, by the way. The, the one time Antifa doesn't wear a mask. The dude's wearing a mask. Antifa was not this time. And then people were yelling at the protesters, protest rioters. I've got to come up with a, an amalgam, a, a word for that. But be that as it may, don't you worry, I will. People are hanging out their windows going, go away. Get out of here. <laughs> Uh, meantime, let's just remind Dick Durbin that the people in the Chipotle were terror were terrorized and ran for their lives. Over to you, Dick Durbin. Let's stop pretending that the threat of Antifa is equivalent to the white supremacist threat. Now, one of the rinse and repeat multiple offenders or offenders at the violent protests over the last period of years, months, has been a, a, a guy by the name of Daryl Kimberlin, he looks like the lead singer in Fallout Boy, and he's 31 years old and an IT guy, and he's a live streamer, and he's part of Antifa, and apparently when he's not live streaming, he's rioting with them. So at last weekend's Portland riot, Kimberlin was arrested on a first-degree criminal mischief charge. And I'm reading here from Coin6 News, who apparently is the only place that actually follows these guys. He was issued a criminal citation and released due to the he was released due to the current COVID-19 booking restrictions at the Multnomah County Detention Center. Um, Just by way of noting the Multnomah County Detention Center, if it's the downtown center, it's all it's all boarded up because people like Daryl Kimberlin keep breaking windows and destroying things. And so anyway, so he, he gets a pass because, well, you know, COVID. But this is the third time that Kimberlin has been arrested during the Portland protests. He was arrested on January 20th, 2021. And 
September 28, 2020. So that's three riots at which he's been arrested. Here he is on his live stream. Uh, He was out in front of the ICE headquarters in another section of Portland, for whatever reason, filming something. There were, of course, protesters out there, as there are quite frequently. I just drove by last weekend and there were protesters out there. Uh, Anyway, so he was out there live streaming and here he is taking questions from his fans on his account as he filmed black block people in front of the ICE office. Roll it. There's behind me. I mean, I'm basically a communist or a socialist. So if I'm going to be paying taxes, I want something back. The Republican Party just wants to cut, 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 cut and fill their like their lobbyist pockets. And uh, like when they do that and we've had Republican presidents, I still pay the same amount of taxes. I don't know if your tax when if your taxes went down, but I've never seen that shit. So if I'm already paying a fuck ton of taxes, why aren't we getting anything? That's why I like I feel like social programs are important because like I'm already fucking paying the money. What am I getting? Yeah, that's what I mean. Like if we're paying taxes, we should the whole fucking country should benefit from it. Cause it's like fucking throwing our money into a pool to like support everyone. You know what I mean? And I I don't see that support getting to anyone that really needs it. Yeah, I work in IT. One time one of y'all assholes doxed me and, like, fucking left my work a fucking note telling them I was Antifa. That was really cool, guys. Don't know if it was anyone in chat, but, I mean, real good job. Dude, I know I'm a privileged, rich, white kid. More privileged, rich, white kid should give a shit. No, me and HR laughed about it. I printed it out and put it on the wall. (laughs) I edited that uh, scintillating uh, byplay between the rioter and his adoring fans for brevity and brevity only. You'll you'll notice that he thought someone had doxxed him, outed him, but he didn't realize that uh, his mugshot had been all over Portland media. So, you know, I don't know. Did it really require somebody to actually write to the company for which he works, which he didn't note, by the way. He noted how his company's HR department laughed at his affiliation with Antifa when it was discovered. And, you know, I just ask, do you want that guy, an anti-capitalist, Antifa communist, as a network engineer at your company? Do you feel safe yet? I'm, I am not for political tests in order to get hired on. But when you've got a guy who has a predilection for getting, breaking things, violent activities, and really far out beliefs... Um, Although I did appreciate his his tax his, his tax advice. Hey, why am I paying all these taxes? You know, I got to hand it to him. At least he's paying taxes. Okay, and he's got a job, so I suppose. But I, you know, do you really do you really want those guys working for you?
Anyway, if you loved the 2020 election travesty, you are going to love the Democrats' so-called For the People Act, which takes over all the voting for national elections. You think you think to yourself, well, of course they take over. It's a national election. Therefore, it's a should be a national job. No, each state is accorded oversight of its own elections, which includes at every two and four years, the elections of in six years, senators, congressional representatives uh, and presidents. This is true. And so what they've tried to do, because Nancy Pelosi wants to consolidate this uh win that they've had in the House of Representatives. And now that we have a 50-50 split in the Senate, they're going to try to cram through a wish list of the worst of the worst voting rules. Now, here's just a few. I've I've gotten these from the Heritage Foundation. I cribbed them from them. Now, check this out. It would seize the authority of states to regulate voter registration and the voting process by forcing states to implement early voting, automatic voter registration, same-day registration, online voter registration, and no-fault absentee voting. It would ban any state from requiring identification to identify yourself as a voter. And you know, why would you need identification? Because after they get done with this, you won't need any identification because none will be ever required again. And by the way, under these rules, you won't even have to be a citizen. It would make it easier, reading here, to commit fraud and promote chaos at the polls through same-day registration as election officials would have no time to verify the accuracy of voter registration information and the eligibility of an individual to vote and could not anticipate the number of ballots and precinct workers that would be needed at a specific polling location. That is by design. Chaos is what they want. I mean, that's why they did default mail-in balloting for most states, certainly in the states that were the worst of the worst, uh, pivotal states. And they go, well, you know, nothing happened. There was as many votes as voters, except they never took into consideration the impersonation of voters through all of the mail-in ballots that were sent to everybody, for which there would be no check and balance. It's just amazing. So they want to do this nationwide. Um, Let's see. Ah, Degrade the accuracy of registration lists. Registration lists are pretty important. By requiring states to automatically register all individuals. All individuals. Now, who are individuals? Individuals include people not citizens and eligible to vote. And they would get these names from state and federal databases DMVs, corrections, welfare offices, and federal agencies as the Social Security Administration, Department of Labor, the Federal Bureau of Prisons. <laughs> Remember that guy? Oh, this is years ago. This had to have been uh, 20, 2004. And there was a guy, he was in jail, and he registered to vote 36 times. And of course, he voted some of the ballots. I'll never forget it because I used to play this on my show in Portland all the time. And he would laugh. That's a lot. <laughs> you might as well just just do you think that the EDD scandal 
in California that didn't even check to see if people asking for COVID-related emergency uh, unemployment were in prison, that they will check to see if somebody is an eligible voter in this system. It would also require 16 and 17-year-olds to be able to register to vote. Oh, with a combined, uh, with a combination of that and a ban on voter ID, there would be no way to check how old they are. That's right. They don't want any checks and balances. Now, what does it tell you when a particular political group wants to ban checks and balances on who's voting um, and whether they're eligible. Now, see, the thing is, is that the Republicans are given, they are, every time that Republicans call for a, a, an ID or something like that to be able to identify the vote with the voter, they're called racist. But you and I both know that when we when we buy tickets for the airplane and have to get on, we have to show ID. You've heard all of those tropes. And so nobody minds voter ID. No one except the SEIU and the suits of the Democrat Party who keep calling the rest of us racist for wanting identification to go along with the vote. And you and I both know that every time... Someone votes who's not allowed to vote, who's not eligible to vote. It diminishes your vote. It dilutes the entire process, which is what happened in the 2020 presidential election, which is why some people still think, and I think rightfully so, there is a lot of hinky stuff that happened. It would mandate no-fault absentee ballots, which are the tool of choice for vote thieves. It would prevent election officials from checking the eligibility and qualification of voters and removing ineligible voters. So they would never be able to call back through the list of voters. None. No voter databases. Let's see. What else does Heritage Foundation put in here? Oh, yeah. This is really it's really troubling. If you like the way the Democrats use the law against Donald Trump for not liking what he said and impeached him for it, you're going to love this. Expand regulation and government censorship of campaigns and political activity and speech, including online and policy-related speech. They will go through and censor it. This is not America. There was also, where's this? This one blew my mind. I just thought, oh, my God. I mean, there's a bunch of them here. So I'll, you know, we'll just link, link up the Heritage Foundation site. If you loved... The way the IRS and Lois Lerner weaponized the IRS against political groups they didn't like, like the Tea Party, you're going to love this rule. It authorizes the IRS to engage in partisan activity. It would permit them to investigate and consider the political and policy positions of nonprofit organizations before granting tax-exempt status. So it would be it would be tantamount to, oh, I don't know, the Southern Poverty Law Center saying, hey, you know, IRS, we don't like Victoria Taft's group over here. Let's not grant her any IRS exemptions for a 501 or C4. Let's not do that. Uh, it games the system by limiting access to federal courts to anyone challenging HR1 to the D.C. courts. I mean, circuit court uh, depends on, you know, where they start. So would D.C. courts are notoriously... 
liberal. Um, and there will, there will be packing the court. That's their objective. Wow. They would establish an Orwellian commission to protect democratic institutions. And this commission would be given authority to compel judges to testify and justify their legal opinions. Transfer the right to draw congressional districts from state legislatures to independent commissions. This would game the system even worse than its game now. You ain't seen gerrymandering until you've seen this. Even the ACLU thinks these are horrible ideas, which ought to tell you really how bad they are. Wow, almost as bad as Meghan Markle's behavior at Buckingham Palace before she and Prince Harry did a bunk. Now, yeah, let's see. Former actress turned princess, turned duchess, turned nothing, Meghan Markle, who has no more royal titles, she tried to say, because she and Prince Harry quit the family business, is being outed in an exclusive report by who knows what, like the Mirror, I think it is, is being outed as a boorish bully by insiders at Buckingham Palace. She was a boorish bully at Buckingham Palace. And why? Because... I'm thinking, because she's she's a new girl, and she didn't know. As a new royal, she didn't really know how to treat people who were supposed to be helping her, and thus acted the way she would have had she been cast in the part of a fish-out-of-water tale about uh, the unlikely event of an American actress thrust in the throes of royalty, and therefore she acted very badly, and so she decided she was going to act the part, and she was just a, a butthead. Now, I just want to I just want you to know this is just before she and Harry are doing an interview for pay with Oprah, who's paying them a million bucks because ain't no doing nothing without getting paid. You know, no free stuff from the royals. They're still they're doing God's work out there. Don't you know they're still giving they're still serving humankind by being just who they are and. Montecito. I mean, I'd love to live in Montecito. My kid went to school up there. Oh, my goodness. And that area, oh, beautiful. Just gorgeous. I do not blame her for wanting to live in Montecito next to Oprah. Who would? It's just gorgeous. But I'm just thinking that if you really want to convey the idea that you are working for all of humankind, I don't think I'd put a, a price tag on everything. And how was your week? Stick around for Antifa versus Mike Strickland on the Adult in the Room podcast. And remember to subscribe, follow, rate five stars. Give me a great review over at your favorite podcast outlets, Apple, Google, Spotify, to name the big boys. And follow me on social media. I'm over at Parlor MeWe Minds, Facebook and Twitter, at Victoria Taft. Don't forget the Adult in the Room podcast on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And on Twitter, the Adult in the Room podcast is Adult in the adult in the, because apparently they're having budget cuts over there. All right, fine. Stick around for Antifa versus Mike Strickland on the Adult in the Room podcast. Get out of here, racist. I'm not a racist. Dude, don't get out of here. Don't put your hands on me. Don't put your hands on me. Do not put your hands on me. Do not put your hands on me. Do not put your hands on me. Put your fing gun down. Don't do 
pushing and shoving. He's got a gun. Just He's got a gun. I don't know why. Hey, stop. 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 Get the hell Before the nightly riots we've seen in the news, there was one case. The first case, the case of Mike Strickland. Now at noon, another court appearance today for the man caught on camera waving a gun at protesters in Portland last month, and now he faces a lot more charges. Michael Strickland faces 21 counts connected to that incident. He was a journalist who was beaten by Antifa and Black Lives Matter protesters, and he defended himself from the mob with his legal gun, and not a shot was fired. Our position hasn't changed. Our client's position has not changed. That he is not guilty, that he was using the um, weapon to protect himself, and he was doing so within his rights. The only one hurt that day in July of 2016 was Mike Strickland. And the only one punished was Mike Strickland, the victim. I'm of the firm and steadfast opinion that when they come for Strickland's rights, they're coming for mine next. See, Antifa says it's anti-fascist, but Antifa is really anti-First Amendment. It's going back to the street violence of the 1920s and 1930s as a technique and a tactic. And the court system doesn't realize it's happening. This is the story of Mike Strickland. The prosecution had rested its case in chief against Mike Strickland. Before it rested, the defense called its use of force witness who was on the witness list and who the prosecution had tried to keep off the stands for reasons which will become clear. The defense called former Gresham police officer and that department's weapons instructor, Jason Servo, an expert in the use of force for police, civilians, as an NRA instructor, and was currently a private investigator. He was former Air Force security, working to secure dignitaries and other large events at the Air Force Academy. He was qualified. And this became the most contentious part of the trial. Servo's testimony was objected to several times in several different ways on whether a use of force expert could explain the actions of a civilian or whether he could tell that Strickland underwent weapons training, whether the crowd was threatening. Did the threat change during the attack? What kind of weapons were considered deadly? And finally, and most critically, was Strickland's response a reasonable one? Servo testified that having uniformed cops in the group would have acted as a deterrent to assault and began to testify about how Strickland used a professional use of force, line, spectrum, matrix. There are several labels for this escalation of force continuum on July 7th, 2016. I mean, what is what is this um, spectrum based on? What are the components? Well, the components basically start, well... In a police world, they start with a, a presence, and that's usually a uniform presence of some kind or an identifiable police officer. Judge, I'm going to object to this testimony as it relates specifically to police officers. Basis of objection? No. Overruled. 
may continue. That's a good question. So what, um, what, how does it, how does this wheel or spectrum work? What are the components of it? So moving on from that, it would be, the next would be verbal commands of some kind. And then if verbal commands are not working or if the threat level increases, you can get into, uh, lesser, um, control holds, uh, and things of that nature. And, and I think. Control holds are specifically taught to police officers, not to civilians. Well, there's no evidence of the record on that. There's no evidence. What, what evidence in this record establishes that control holds are taught to police and not to civilians? My objection, Judge, is that Mr. Servo is testifying about a use of force wheel that is specifically instruct, instructing police officers. So he said that it's to instruct law enforcement, police, how to respond to certain situations. And he's describing different techniques that police officers will use. That's not relevant to a civilian that's not a police officer. How's it relevant? The testimony was actually that he it is used to teach uh, private citizens as well. Yeah. Not sure I remember that. Why don't you ask a question in that regard before I rule on the objection? Establish that. Thank you. So, Mr. Servo, um, in talking about um, a use of force wheel or spectrum uh, that you've been testifying about, talking about the appropriate use of force based on a perceived threat. Is that applicable only to police officers or can those principles also, are they also applicable to a private citizen? They're applicable to both and I've used them. Hold on. Objections overruled. In 2016, the Portland police had just begun a new strategy on protests. No uniforms in or near the crowd. Any riot squads were blocks away. And as we heard in the last episode of Antifa versus Mike Strickland, the videographer, no fan of cops, was nonetheless concerned about his security after the mob first attacked him. When the 400-pound Ben Carenza put his hands on him and tried to boot him out of the crowd with the help of his masked buddies. One had a flagstaff, or as we've come to learn, what's really called a weapon. Where were the cops? They were watching, we learned. The use of force expert was asked about police presence as a deterrent. About the officer presence or lack of presence, why is that a part of the determination for appropriate response to a given threat? The specifics to an officer being present um, just gets to a, a, a uniformed known police officer on the streets is known as someone who can take uh, appropriate action and has authority to take those actions. And a lot of times um, a police officer just being present can negate a situation from escalating. Okay. Thank you. And so you talked about verbal communication. Uh, what would be the, and just, just to clarify, tell me, is, so is, is, is we're talking about this, these are sort of steps as the perceived threat escalates or, or, or not escalates, you can go along to an increased amount of force. Yes. Right. Okay. 
Strickland attorney Chris Trotter asked about the level of responses, which he testified Strickland used depending on what the crowd was doing. And then he asked the use of force expert about what constituted deadly force. Among the things to consider, how many potential threats were there? Were they bigger than you, more muscular? And if you went down, were you going down on cement, asphalt, or grass? What did they have in their hands? Bats, sticks, fire? And then he asked about the 21-foot rule, the space it takes for someone to react to a threat. Strickland's antagonists were within 10 feet and closing. Could he pull his gun to stop the onslaught? The largest issue there is the ability to defend yourself from multiple assailants, uh, no matter how that defense is, whether it's with uh, your hands or your feet, um, whether it's a weapon of some kind. Uh, it, it doesn't matter at that point if they're that close. Uh, the ability for them to be on top of you, uh, of a person. Um, and those are just the known threats. And like I talked about in the crowd, you don't always necessarily know what all the threats are. There are good people in those crowds, in those protests, and there are people that are there uh, that may be uh, more aggressive. And if those are the people that you're seeing, I think you're getting the right stimulus and the ability for them to react and be on top of you to inflict harm uh, comes into play being outnumbered by as many people as, you know, even two or three. Uh, not taking into effect that you don't know in the crowd how many others may join into that. Okay. In your capacity as a police officer, did you carry this, uh, a pistol inside on? Yes, I did. Okay. In, in your enforcement and your duties associated therewith, have you ever had to pull a gun out of your holster and point it at someone. Yes. Objection, Your Honor. He's talking about his experience as a police officer. Police officers have lots of authority to pull firearms on people for reasons that civilians cannot. So I'm objecting on relevance grounds to the extent he's talking about his experience pulling his sidearm as a police officer. So I've been asked if he's ever done. That's the only question to this point. Overruled. Next question. And I wasn't sure if he answered the question. He did. Yep. He said he, he, I did. He, I spent him wrong. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. And how many times would you say you've done it? Objection. Relevance. Overruled. Sit down. Um, Just to the best of your. Did you, you probably keep the time? Over a 16 year career. It, Several hundred, if not into the low thousands. Okay. And out of those times, how many times did you actually discharge and shoot at the person? Uh, never. Okay. So, in your training experience, is brandishing a firearm and or removing it from the holster and or pointing at individuals Sometimes, uh, it, it can it be a technique to deter violence and to uh, be an effective self-defense technique? It is a self-defense technique that's used. 
as uh, your stimulus or the attacker or however we want to put it continues to aggress. Um, but it can also be a factor in stopping the aggressive uh, nature of you. Okay. And once again, very much goes to the totality of the circumstances, correct? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Much was made of Strickland's finger never being put on the trigger in the gun community, by cops, and on the street. Servo said that, in fact, was preferable and that officers and civilians are trained to do that until they get their gun on target. He also testified that Strickland was right to back away from the crowd because you don't turn your back on a threat. He noted that Strickland was backing toward the street, prompted by the mob, and there was a car driving on that street. Indeed, the point was that they were backing Strickland into an even more dangerous situation. Listen to the exchange in which Servo, Trotter, Prosecutor Todd Jackson, and Judge Thomas Ryan get into it a little bit. Given what's depicted in the video, your observations here with Mr. Strickland having having been in the in the crowd, um, having a, a group of individuals come and physically accost him, him, Mr. Strickland saying, "Stay back, don't touch me, leave me alone," him being pressed by a crowd moving backwards approximately half a block with a mob mentality type of situation, everything encroaching on him, and him using a tripod to try and cut people off, people continuing, then continuing backwards, and him uh, showing a firearm, and then the, the crowd actually becoming more animated and continuing, with one of the individuals coming, a large individual who's just assaulted him, accosted him, coming on the left, with another individual who seems to be peaceable, but on the right, and then with a male, an aggressive large male coming at him, a, a masked person, at least one, uh, wearing all black with black staff, smoke, who knows, could be a, whatever it is, in, in hand, with people yelling, and him then knowing he's armed at this point, and branching your weapon, and then continuing to back up, and then seeing people encroaching particularly this large male on the left, and him pulling out the firearm with his finger indexed, not on the trigger, pointing at that person, that person moving at him, moving his gun and shooting the crowd, the individuals in front of him, and then reholstering him with his hand out, and then continuing to move backwards. Did he act reasonably under those circumstances? Objection. That is the specific question that the briefing has addressed. That is the specific question that... Why, why, what about the rule that says an expert witness, you're not disputing that he's an expert, right? No. Okay. An expert witness can give an opinion on an ultimate fact. It's not binding, obviously, but the, the witness can give it. This went on for several minutes. Finally, Trotter was allowed to ask the expert witness his opinion of the, quote, totality of the circumstances that day. The first voice you hear is Prosecutor Jackson's. In a self-defense case, where the two things the court is evaluating are whether or not the defendant reasonably perceived an imminent threat and used a degree of force that he reasonably believed was necessary 
to ask this person, was he reasonable in what he was doing, giving the exact hypothetical of the facts of the case, is in essence asking him to tell the fact finder, I'm not guilty. That's not permissible. The objections overruled. Did the witness answer? I believe he did. No, I didn't. He did not. Do you remember the question? Yes, I do. What is your answer as to whether he acted reasonably? That I believe he did act reasonably and appropriate. Just, and if I can clarify that a little bit. Uh, I, I've answered, you've answered the question. Okay, yes. So, uh, does that conclude your examination? Yes, it does. Trotter verified on redirect questioning that Servo still believed Strickland had acted reasonably. After Jackson cross-examined Servo for a couple of minutes, the defense rested its case. And then came the surprise witness sprung on the defense. The judge allowed the prosecution to put on a surprise so-called ambush witness. Your Honor, the defense has no further witnesses. And we do not have further testimony as such without request. All right. Uh, rebuttal case? Uh, judge, in light of some of the testimony that um, you just received from Mr. Servo that in all candor was a little unexpected to the state, uh, I would uh, request an opportunity to speak with um, a witness that may be able to provide testimony directly in rebuttal to that. And so um, I don't have that person available right now. Okay. Uh, I will know by tomorrow morning. And so I can report to the court in that spot there. All right. Uh, so, uh, let me ask, uh, well, let me see the lawyers in chambers. The defense strenuously objected, but in the end, the judge allowed it. The defense says it did not receive the information from the prosecution about their ambush witness until nine o'clock that night. The next morning at 930, the trial resumed. Officer Ryan Rasmussen of the Gresham Police Department, whom Servo, the defense attorney's use of force witness, helped train and who acted as his aide, was called the next day and testified Strickland hadn't been reasonable in his defense. Rasmussen had never taught a civilian gun course and knew only of police training. He said not having uniformed officers in the crowd was perfectly fine because it was safer for officers. And ultimately, that Strickland, a civilian, did not do the right thing by holding back the crowd with his gun. When you add in what we're looking at here with a crowd of 100 people plus all of the other innocents within that area, it would not be appropriate to then draw. I'm not even I don't even have a problem with Mr. Strickland drawing and immediately addressing the individual to the left uh, in the crosswalk. Cross He's identified that as a threat, and correctly so, that that person could be a threat. So he's drawn and he's addressed him. And then the issue becomes when he's completely flagged across the entire crowd of people past Tan Pants, who he's identified as other threat, and then completely flagged back the other way, pointing a weapon at all of those people. That's would be inappropriate. Next time on Antifa versus Mike Strickland, the verdict. 
Remember to subscribe, follow, rate five stars, and give me a great review over at your favorite podcast outlets, Apple, Google, and Spotify, to name the big boys. And follow me on social media. I'm over at Parlor, MeWe, Minds, Facebook, and Twitter, at Victoria Taft. Don't forget the Adult in the Room podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at the Adult in the Room podcast, except Twitter only has room for the Adult in the, Adult in the, at Adult in the. Fine. It works. Get in touch with me at Victoria at VictoriaTaft.com. Editing, mastering, advertising, technical support, and understanding for the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft is by 1A Cast. The music is gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for the case of Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by RC, and it is used by permission. Find RC on all social sites at Raps by RC. Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Instagram at Raps by RC. Imaging for the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft is by 1A Cast. Logo by Hageman Creative. Find him on Instagram. Photo of Victoria Taft is by Hilly Collective. The Adult in the Room podcast is produced by Flamingo Road Studios. All rights reserved.